0: I want to welcome our live stream audience. They've been waiting for about a minute and a half while we stopped talking. Ron and I were having a great conversation. And uh, so I know that many of you were sharing as well. Uh, This evening, I'm I'm sitting. I don't like to teach from a seated position, but um, this is the way Jesus taught, by the way. Did you know that? That the, the rabbis would sit and the people stood and then the rabbis would stand when they were done. It was interesting. But anyway. Um, I've been facing a little bit of a, a foot problem, and so uh, sitting helps me a little bit. Today is my, my youngest daughter's birthday, Andy, Brent, Pastor Brenton's wife. Uh, she is her birth, it's her birthday today, so uh, I wish her a happy birthday. I know she uh, teaches school all day, so at my prayer this morning when she went off to school, you know, I, I thought, Lord, just let the kids just be so nice and helpful today. I don't know if that happened, but anyway. All right, well, take your Bible out, Second Kings chapter 5. we were moving right through the Kings, and we try to bite off about a chapter at a time, and tonight I think we'll definitely be able to finish up the entire chapter. And uh, Sunday was such a wonderful time in the Lord, good worship, just tremendous, and then uh, really appreciated the video that Deb had selected for the Veterans uh, just really very moving, very, very good. And uh, and then we had someone, Ron was sharing with me, who came forward afterwards and received Jesus Christ. And this person was not a spring chicken, a, a little older. And I was telling Ron that uh, it is rare for an older adult to receive Jesus. And we looked it up. 85% of all people who come to Christ come between, what was the age, Ron? It was young. Like, like age age six to age six to fifteen or something like that. Yeah, and then after thirty, only four percent get saved. After the age of thirty, this was George Barna research, and he's a pretty solid guy. So, I I just rejoice over salvation. That's a miracle in itself. But then when you see an older adult give their heart to Jesus, he actually said to Ron, uh, "I don't I don't think I'm saved." after the message, just not sure. And Ron said, well, let's settle that issue right now. And that man received Christ, so praise God for that. Well, let's go ahead and, and have a prayer and then we'll get into the word tonight. Father, as we study chapter five, we thank you for this, this a story, one story, but what a powerful story it is. And I pray that we would learn tonight the things from the text that you are showing us And may we be able to identify personally, subjectively the things that are in the story. May it not be that we just read it for the sake of thinking about other people and just knowing more about the story. Lord, by the Holy Spirit, speak to us individually how this story impacts us. And we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for the Holy Spirit and his work. And we pray that tonight we would be obedient students of the word. Amen. Verse 1, chapter 5. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Interesting. So Naaman, it says, was a chief military commander Uh, and really, honestly, a persistent enemy of Israel, a commander in the Syrian army. He was a mighty, it says right here in the text, he was a mighty man of valor. Mighty man of valor. Naaman was the chief commander. Interesting. Uh, We don't see that mighty man of valor phrase used often in Scripture, when it is used, it has significant meaning, and his position, his success made him honorable among his people. and he's a mighty man of valor. The same title was given to Gideon. If you want to write down these just for as Bible students, knowing doing a little cross-referencing, uh, Gideon was, was spoken of as a mighty man of valor. The text would be Judges chapter 6, verse 12. and then Jephthah. Uh, in Judges chapter eleven, verse one, he was another one of the judges, one of the heroes that rescued Israel out of their 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 mess. And then David was called the mighty valley, Verse eighteen, and then there was Jeroboam. Verse twenty-eight, Eliada. He was uh, that's E L I. Maybe. 17. Go right ahead. Technical difficulties. And here's what I know for sure. I know that it's not Brandon. It's me. (laughs) He does a great job. I appreciate him. Thanks for correcting that, Brandon. Appreciate it. we're, we're learning as we go. I've never sat before. I think I was sitting on it, and, and it was cutting out on, on us. So, anyway. Um, so, so, those are the people who, in the Bible, were mentioned as mighty men of valor. However, interestingly, never until now do we see a non-Israelite mentioned as a mighty man of valor. That's very interesting, okay? Now, according to Jewish legend, it was Naaman who shot the arrow that mortally wounded King Ahab. Remember, he was mortally wounded in battle. And they, this is just legend, it's not in the Bible, but Jewish or Hebrew legend has it that Naaman was the one who shot King Ahab. Now, even though this decorated commander had so many things going for him, he also had something that was working against him, a devastating reality he was stricken with leprosy. In that day, leprosy was a horrible, incurable disease that would slowly bring a person to death. No matter how successful Naaman was in every other area of his life, he was facing an irreversible disease. Now, talk about carrying a heavy yoke. Some of us face physical illness. Maybe we live with chronic physical issues. and that is a yoke that you're bearing. That's an that's a extra, you know, I told Brandon tonight, I said I'm probably more like the Apostle Paul tonight than I ever have been my whole life because he carried a thorn in the flesh. And I've got a thorn in my foot right now. It's not a thorn, but it's, it's a thorn in the flesh, that's for sure. So we know that some of the greatest men and women of God carried thorns in the flesh. Well, Naaman, his thorn in the flesh, wow. You talk about heavy, heavy stuff. This is a yoke that I would never want to bear. Ancient leprosy, let me talk to you about that. A medical doctor telling us about ancient leprosy. He said it began as small red spots on the skin, but over time, the spots would grow and then turn white with a scaly appearance. Soon after, the spots spread over the whole body. At the same time, your hair would fall out, starting with the head and eyebrows. And that would lead to losing fingernails and toenails as they rotted off. Finally, the appendages would begin to fall off one by one. Can you imagine? A leprosy victim's gums would finally actually shrink until they couldn't hold the teeth any longer. So you're going to lose your teeth. Also, the facial flesh would deteriorate. In some cases, causing the loss of a nose, the loss of a palate. Even the eyes would begin to go and rot. We're, we're talking about an insidious disease that people in that day had to live with. You literally waste away until you're dead. It's, you're a walking dead person is what you are. And it, much like today, these, you know, sci-fi uh, zombies walking around. That's what a, a leper would look like, just literally falling apart. So, uh, very interesting. This, it's in, the reason I was so graphic with that, as you're eating your food, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> the reason I was graphic is because when you get a little further into this story, and you see the attitude of Naaman and you begin to see that even with such a terrible disease that, is, uh, that affects you in every way, yet his pride was his biggest issue, even bigger than the leprosy. And we're going to see that. Verse 2, now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy." So this little girl was literally taken captive by the Syrians from her homeland, Israel. She is making the most of her captivity, showing great faithfulness to God by saying, if Naaman could just see the man of God. In other words, there's only one God, and it's not Baal as you Syrians think. It is the one true and living God, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is a little girl who understands that, why? Because she was probably raised in a home with a mom and dad who taught her well early on, who showed respect to the prophet Elisha. Remember in that day, Many did not show respect to Elisha. In fact, the king very much hated Elisha and did not even respect God. So for this little girl to have this position, this to take this to have this understanding, she was raised right. And now that's not a guarantee, is it? I wish it, I wish I could say that it's a guarantee that if you raise your child right, They're gonna grow up and just live for the Lord, be on fire for God, white, hot, red coal fire. Uh, That's not the case. Every child is unique. Every child has their own will and their own desires and how they wanna live. And all we can do as parents and grandparents is pray for them that somehow the light of Christ will shine in their heart, that the light will come on, they'll see the truth of the gospel and they'll be saved. So don't ever stop praying for your children, but there's no guarantee that your children or grandchildren are going to be turn out a certain way if they're raised a certain way. I, the reason I say that, because I know when I was younger and I would be in a mixed setting of young adult couples with kids, there would always be also couples there that maybe didn't have kids. I, I'm thinking of one particular couple, they, didn't, they couldn't have kids, at least they, at the, up to that point in time, and they were probably in their early 30s and still didn't have any kids. And we would pray for them. and We were hoping and asking God for, their, for them to be able to bear a child. And, uh, but she would say, well, I can, she'd watch others raising their kids. Well, I can tell you, I will not do it that way. My children will not, she would go on and on about this, you know, and how, and then how her kids would turn out. And, you, you know, until you've had kids, you don't really understand. <laughs> And she was still in this idealistic world, okay? And uh, of course, later she had kids. I mean, she started drinking water from the church water fountain. And I mean, she had kid after kid after kid. She had like four boys, three or four boys. So that changed after a while. But, but, but that's why I say this, because we can easily think as Christians that if I'm doing this the way I should do it according to Scripture, then there's going to be this result. But the Bible doesn't just talk about predestination and election. It also talks about free will. And man has the ability to go his own path. God does not force any human being to obey him. If he did, if he somehow worked that into our DNA, that we didn't have a choice but to obey him, then he wouldn't really have love for us. Real love Is giving the person the opportunity to do what they choose and we still love them. That's what Jesus did. We chose sin through Adam. We sinned. And that's when God came after us, sending his son to die for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Isn't that wonderful? So, so just getting off here a little bit, but I just think it's important that we understand. This little girl was raised right, and it stuck at an early age. She was pointing this, this uh, wife of Naaman to, to God through the prophet Elisha. So, uh, verse 4, So Naaman went in and told his lord, thus, now he's speaking to his king, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. That tells us that the king saw Naaman as a mighty man of valor. The king saw Naaman as honorable. He was irreplaceable. And he was going to do whatever he could to help Naaman uh, be healed. In verse 6, and he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you... So this is the king writing a letter to uh, the king of Israel. When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. The king of Israel thought he was saying things like this in order to stir him up into battle. And here's the, here's the sad uh, now, or the sad part about this is the king of Israel did not believe in God. He had totally forgotten God. So he's thinking, this guy wants me to heal. I can't heal. Okay, that's right, you can't. But you know who can. Well, evidently, he didn't want to consider the God who could. That's how far Israel had drifted under uh, poor kings for decades. Okay. So, um, he's not sure what to do with it. Uh, in all likelihood, 2 Kings is not arranged in chronological order. First of all, this letter would never come to the king of Israel if things were hotly contested, because that would just, you know, that'd be the spark that lights the fire, okay, against each other. 2 uh, Kings is not paying as much attention to chronology as they are to events that matter. So, it was probably in a period of time when there was a sense of peace between Syria and Israel. And that's why the king of Israel said, what's he trying to do? You know, start a war? He's starting a quarrel with us? So, evidently at that time, there was no quarrel, okay? Uh, Now, when the king of Israel read the letter, he was very upset. And let me tell you, give you a couple of reasons why. First, It was obviously out of his power to heal Naaman's leprosy, so he's frustrated. I can't do anything about this. Secondly, he had no relationship with the prophet of God. In in prior chapters, we know that uh, he did not have respect or honor for the prophet of God. And so he didn't even consider that. That's pretty sad. He thought the king of Syria was picking a fight. Now, verse 8, But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. Wow! I love Elisha's gentle rebuke of the king of Israel. This is very good. Basically, what Elijah is saying here to the king is, why is this a crisis to you? Our God can easily handle this matter with the Syrian commander. Oh, oh, that's right. You don't believe in our God. Interesting. Okay? And so, Baal is your God, and you know Baal can't do this. So, he's calling out the king, the man of God is trying to get the the, the king to see the error of his way. Now, keep in mind the prophet of God wasn't welcome at the palace. So, verse 9, So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. He's just outside the door, okay? And Elisha sends out a messenger to him. Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord of his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. And not Abana and Pharpar, the rivers of Damascus, are not they better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Interesting. Naaman took the time to travel all the way to the home of Elisha, yet Elisha refused to give him a personal visit. He simply sent out his servant to instruct Naaman how to be healed. And so remember now, Naaman is accustomed. Naaman is the commander of the entire uh, Syrian army. So he is accustomed the people showing honor and respect to him, okay? Even though he's a leper, okay, you show respect. So here, Elisha sends out a servant to give him the message. Uh, Also remember just how insidious the disease is. This is obviously a test from the Lord. You've got probably the worst disease a person can have, a lingering disease that ends in death. And yet, you were offended because this man of God did not come out and address you personally. You're offended because his instructions for healing are that you wash in the river Jordan. And the Jordan River, compared to the rivers in Syria, was a filthy, polluted river. Much better rivers over in Syria. So he's full of himself. This is a king who has leprosy. His future is dim, and yet his pride is his real problem. That's even a bigger problem. And it shows up big right here in the text. Uh, Verse 13, but his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So interesting that his servants call him father. Him being a commander, he probably ordered them to call him that. He probably wanted them to respect him in that way. But it also could be that they had such respect for him. Because remember now, he's the only Syrian who was a mighty man of valor. So they didn't mind being under him as a father would be over or a son would be under his father. Uh, But interesting what they say to him. Uh, You have to give the servants uh, some credit here that they would speak boldly to their master. He's leaving in a rage. And they're like, you think that's the right thing to do? Uh, They use brilliant logic, by the way. If Elijah had asked Naaman to sacrifice a thousand animals to be healed, he wouldn't have hesitated. What was such a big deal washing in a river seven times? Pride. Pride. And these guys basically said, without saying it, uh, why would you not do what he asked you to do? It's much simpler what he's asking than if you had to kill a thousand rams. Now, they didn't say that, but that's essentially what they're trying to get the point across. Verse 14, So he went down and dipped himself, and that means to actually lower yourself completely under the water. Dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Now, this is interesting because even in our day, When we have an issue that we're facing, it doesn't have to be physical, it could be a financial issue, it could be any kind of an issue, relational issue. And someone gives us advice, and it's biblical. I mean, it's good advice, but it doesn't seem like the most expedient way, or it doesn't seem like it's the most modern way to handle the issue that you're facing. And you say, man, I can do better by just going over here and and you've got your own plan you've got your own way of god helping you is anybody in the room identifying with this and it's not that we set out if somebody said oh so you're smarter than god you're gonna you're gonna tell god how he has to help you you would say oh my goodness no i would never want to be like that but we do it all the time We resist, we reject possibly someone that God has sent to us with His Word to help us. But because it's somebody that's not in a position of prestige, they don't have a degree behind them. They don't seem to have the reputation in the community. We don't listen, we ignore it, we go over to somebody else. That's why ministry is such an effective tool and such a blessing of God that He would allow all of His children in the church to be called ministers, not just those who are degreed, not just those who have all the training or have all the experiences in a certain way. Did you know that you are called a minister in the Bible? He gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. He wants the saints to minister. So, so this week, when somebody says to you, or in the next month, somebody says, tell me about your church. You say, well, we just have, we have like, you know, in Sunday morning, we have like 200, 250 ministers. What? How in the world can you afford to have 250 ministers? Oh, no, the church, the people, we're the ministers. That'll blow their mind. They've been so conditioned to think that the ministry is done by the paid staff. The paid Ministry is done by the volunteer staff. But it's a small number of people who do all the ministry for the Mass. No, no, that's not biblical. That's not the early church. The early church, everybody ministered to everybody. And so that was offensive to Naaman, that he would send out a servant to tell me what to do. You're the guy. You're the man of God. We heard about you all the way in Syria. That's how, much, how well known you are. At least you can come out. I'm the commander of the Syrian army. Come out and tell me what I need to do. He was offended, and he left in a rage. So who's that on? It's on Naaman. Naaman has put himself in a position where he fails the test that God has presented him. I think at the end of the story, it's pretty obvious that Naaman came to realize that his haughtiness His pride was his worst problem, not his leprosy. But at this point, he doesn't see it. He doesn't see it. Verse 15, then he returned to the man of God. Because the servants spoke logic to him, he humbled up, okay? He ate some humble pie, and he returns to the man of God. He and all his company. And he came and stood before him. Interesting. The man of God, Elisha, the reason he didn't go out the first time was because God told him not to go out. I'm testing this man. Now he comes back with his tail between his legs, with a right spirit, and now Elisha presents himself. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. How would he know that? Because you just had me wash... Seven times in a filthy river to get rid of a filthy disease. And the filthy river cleansed me completely. Only God could do that. It'd be like asking somebody to go out and drink muddy water out of a ditch in order to to get a good drink of water. Uh, Nobody would ever do that unless God said, do it. And if God says, do it, then he can use any water, right, to perform what he chooses to do. Remember the woman with just the little vial or the little flask of oil that her husband used when he was living for anointing and now she pours that little flask pours and pours and pours and the two boys keep bringing bigger vats, bigger jars and they just the oil keeps flowing until the last jar is completely filled to the brim and then the oil stops flowing. That is our God. That is what our God can do, and by the way, that is what our God does all the time. Our God is able to make the difference in every situation in your life. Now it's interesting, wouldn't it be nice if God always provided the miracle? Wouldn't that be a blessing? That every time I get into a bind, God provides a miracle. Okay, yeah, two years ago I shouldn't have bought that brand new car with money that I didn't have. So God, I'm asking you to provide a miracle and just pay off that debt somehow for me. Boom, debt-free. Praise God, hallelujah. What lesson did you learn? You learned nothing about the value of money. You learned nothing about discipline in your life, self-control. All you learned was, when I have a problem, I just rub the shiny side of that little vial and the genie comes out and takes care of my problem. That is not the way God works 99% of the time. What He does is He allows the problem to be the tool or the teacher to show us deeper revelation about ourselves and about life. And so Naaman had a real problem. At first, he wanted it done a certain way. He kind of already knew how he thought God would heal. He said, "The man will come out. He'll wave his arms, and I'll be healed." Uh, God didn't do it that way. And That offended him. So now, think about this: He's offended by God Himself because God didn't heal him when he, the way he thought he should. It's true of us. We've been. Pr- I, do you know how long I've been praying? I've been praying for years that my child would come to Jesus, and now I'm old and I'm going to die, and they still haven't come to the Lord. What is wrong with God? You don't know the whole story. If you really want to look at Scripture, let's just look at this story. What do you think the parents thought when their daughter was abducted? Think about the grief that they suffered for years because their daughter was taken by the Syrians. They suffered greatly, yet they didn't know and didn't understand that even through the pain of this life, that God can still come and use the messes. He can use the tragedies. And he would use this little girl to point the commander of the Syrian army to him, So that in the Old Testament, a Gentile comes to believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I wish I could draw a pretty picture around everything and tie a nice bow and ribbon and say, Man, isn't it wonderful what God does? It's just how He works. It all just is perfect. No, it's not. A parent that loses a child... Yeah, the child is with the Lord, that's true. But that parent is going to go forward for a long time remembering the loss, feeling the loss. That loss will affect them in so many ways. Now, can God help them with that? Can God help heal them of the loss? Yes, He can. But they'll never, ever forget what happened. That's not a pretty bow on the story, is it? So this is where we as believers have to trust God and know that one day when we're in heaven, all things will be revealed to us that we don't know now. But right now, all we do know from Bible, from the Bible is that God is good. It doesn't say God does good as if he could do good and And then he doesn't, he's not always good. Sometimes he's good, sometimes he's not. No, no. It says he is good. That's his nature. Not a good like we might see somebody as good. The person we see as good, they have an ugly side too. Everybody does. Amen? God has no ugly side. So then, therefore, whatever the story is that we're hanging up on that is frustrating us and and, and we're hurting over it, rather than let that play out and the enemy use it to, 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 to separate us from a loving God, what we need to do is just trust that the Lord knows. And I'm never going to get the answer here on this side of eternity. It's just not going to make sense to me. And that's okay. By the way, you're not alone in that. Believe me, many people, have had things happen to them that they still to this day don't have all the answers for. But that's why we trust God. That's why we walk in faith. Because we don't have all the information. We can't put it together logically. But we trust Him. Amen? So important that we see ourselves in Naaman. Because we're really not far from him. Verse 15, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. He knew that because God did the unexplainable, okay? Uh, verse 17, then Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth from now, for from now on... Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, so then he wanted to make a... He wanted to... Uh, obviously, he wanted to... Um, Verse 15, let's go there. Then he returned to the man of God and he and in all of his company, and he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. Elisha wasn't going to have it. He didn't want to receive anything from this man. We don't really know why, okay? Uh, it doesn't tell us why he resisted taking a gift from the man that he was able to help. Maybe maybe because God told him not to. Uh, there are times as a minister that I'll do a wedding or a funeral, and there are times where people will want to give me uh, an honorarium for doing it. They want to bless me with financial gift, and there's times I've taken it, and then there's other times I have not taken it, and I wouldn't take it. And at times it made people mad that I didn't take it, but but that's okay. There's times where I sense God saying, "Don't, no," and so we don't know the story behind why he didn't, but we do know that Naaman did the right thing. He wanted to bless this man of God because he was healed. Okay, that's that's a good thing. Now let's keep moving. Verse 17. Then Naaman said, "If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, for now, for from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifices." To any god but the Lord. In other words, I'm going back to Syria where they worship many gods, including Baal, and I am very close to the king. So when the king goes in to make sacrifice and he gets on his knees before a false god, I don't have a choice. I've got to go in with him. But I want to take some soil from Israel back with me to help me to remember the one true and living God. That's interesting. Like many new believers, Naaman was superstitious in his faith. He held a common opinion, and this was a common opinion in the ancient world, I learned from one of the commentaries, that particular deities had no power over particular places. He thought that if he took a piece of Israel back within the Syria, he could better worship the God of Israel. No, he's weak in the faith, so he's adding things and you see people who get saved, and the first thing they do, they buy a cross to wear around the neck. Now, is there a problem with that when you see that? No. Okay, if, if we see this man who's older, who got saved, and it comes Sunday morning, he's got a big cross around his neck, you know? That could happen, okay? But But here's the problem. Why are you wearing the cross? Is it because you want people to know that you're a Christian? That's not a bad thing. Or is it that in your weak faith, you think the cross is going to help protect you? That God will protect you because you're wearing the cross? That would be what? That's a false idol. That's a graven image. The cross can become a false hope for Christians. Okay? It's the preaching of the cross that brings salvation, not the cross itself. So I'm not saying it's wrong if you have a cross for the right reason, but I am saying if you have a crucifix with Jesus still hanging on the cross, hanging in your house somewhere, the general reason for people doing that in the Catholic faith is for protection and for blessing. No, no, we're not protected and blessed by a little statue on the wall we're protected and blessed by the god because we know his word we walk in it and the holy spirit of god lives in me why do i need to wear something on the outside if he's inside of me you see the difference so maybe that causes somebody to stop wearing the cross because they were wearing it for the wrong reason now it's popular in our day uh, maybe maybe 15 years ago it was more popular than it is today i don't know i I haven't watched NFL football in years, Um, but there was a time when in college and NFL football and other sports too, you'd see the guys wearing the cross earrings. You'd see them with a big gold cross around their neck after the game doing an interview. And it became popular. So you had guys who probably didn't know the Lord truly, who were wearing a cross because they wanted to be associated with that culture. That's a wrong reason. Know why you would have a cross around your neck. And if it's for any other reason than just being a witness for Jesus and opening a, it opens a chance, it's an opportunity for me to speak. If somebody goes, Oh, you're wearing a cross, are you a Christian? Yes. Take the, take the cross, flip it around the backside, and I'll talk to them about Jesus and from the word. Amen? You see what I'm saying? Okay. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimon. "...to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon." "...When I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter." And and Elisha's response was, go in peace. He didn't say, yes, I will, or no, I will not. He just said, go in peace. In other words, I think he's saying, God's going to instruct you when you get in those situations. Yes, you no longer worship the God of your king, but when you go into those situations, Uh, God will show you what to do. Or maybe God's going to say to him, uh, I need to tell the king I no longer worship that God. Who knows? I don't know what the Lord's going to say to him. But but Elisha doesn't give him this false hope that it's okay to do what he's doing, okay? That'd be like the person who gets saved, they were an alcoholic, they get saved, they're going to AA and God's helping them, and they've been sober now for a year. And they say, wow, praise God, I'm going to go out and start ministering in the bars. Uh, wrong guy. Uh, We do need people who can go and minister in difficult places. You're not one of them because you'll be overtaken. Satan will use that to overtake you. We have to know where God's called us and stay away from the places he hasn't. And if you say, well, I, I just feel like God can really use me in this. Okay, here's what you should do. Run it by your spouse. Nobody knows you better than your spouse. Run it by a godly friend that you're in accountability with. Run it by your Sunday school teacher that you have built a relationship with. Whatever the story is. Because sometimes we can't see the truth. We can't see the forest for the trees. And we'll put ourselves in a situation we have no business being in. Amen? Amen? Okay? So God's going to probably deal with uh, uh, Naaman in his own way. Verse 18, in this matter, okay, so he said go in peace. Um, Some commentators uh, believe that Naaman asked forgiveness for his previous idolatry in the temple of Rimon instead of asking permission for future occasions. Uh, The text doesn't render that, so I can't believe that that's true. I think he actually meant for the future, and Elisha's response was pretty clear. Uh, I'm not going to say yes or no. You're not going to corner me like that. Just go in peace. In other words, God's given you peace. Walk in peace, whatever that means, whatever that wherever that takes you. Verse nineteen. But when Naaman, the latter part of the verse. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, "See, my master spared this Naaman to Syria, uh, the Syrian, in not accepting from his hand what he brought." As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him as the Lord lives. As if, you know, the guy was doing a good thing trying to help us and bless us for the healing. I'm going to, in the name of the Lord, I'm going to go and get something that, you know, he was willing to offer, so I'll just, I'll go get it. Okay, trying to, you ever prayed prayers that absolutely are not of God, but you're trying to weasel in your own will in, in the prayer and make it look as if it's from God? It doesn't go well, does it? And it doesn't work. Remember when Gavin Newsom, the governor in California, actually came out earlier this year? I think it was this year. And he actually uh, quoted Jesus and then as the reason why abortions should happen. Can you imagine, in the name of Jesus calling out known sin and treating it as if it's not a... I mean, you talk about a blasphemy, okay? So here, Gehazi followed Naaman, and when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, is all well? And he said, all is well. My master has sent me to say. Now, did the master send him? He's lying, okay? Uh, there have... there have... Just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. Did he make that up? It doesn't say that he made that story up, but if he just made up the story that his master sent him, you can pretty much guarantee he made it up, even though the text doesn't say that. And Naaman said, be pleased to accept two talents, and he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants, and they carried them before Gehazi. By the way, when Naaman came to Elisha to begin with, with leprosy, he came with an entourage. He's the commander. He's not coming alone. By the way, why would he need an entourage other than the fact that he was the highest official in the land? Because what he brought in all the gold and silver that he brought from the king would equal in that day, it would have been like 1.2 plus million dollars. That 3.8? Good. That, that's in our modern day. Good. Uh, the 1.2 came from a commentary, and that guy's older, so that shows you what's happened in America, you know. <laughs> So, so, this guy was loaded, and he wanted to bless the man of God for the healing. Um, and so now, this Gehazi is lying, and he wants to get some of it. And so, Eli, or Naaman says, I'll, look, I'll give you two talents, and I'll also give you some change of clothing, two pairs of clothing. And he laid them on two of his servants. Now, that's interesting. How much is two talents? I don't know, but I know it takes two servants to carry it, because that's what he said. He laid the two talents on two servants along with the clothes, so they're loaded down, okay? By the way, uh, each talent weighed, if it's gold and silver, it weighed approximately, each talent, each bag of either gold or silver weighed approximately 120 pounds, So 240 pounds, not including the clothing, two two outfits, okay? And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in in the house, and he sent the men away, and they departed. So the the servants carried him up to the top of the hill, and he took them in the house, and then they all departed. So Gehazi was shocked that his master refused to take anything from such a wealthy, influential, and grateful man. He figured that somehow maybe we should try to get some of that But then again, now we know it was probably self-centered because he's lying to Naaman in order to get it. Uh, He probably maybe maybe Gehazi thought God would bless him with these things because of what his his master had done. Uh, But this was not God's blessing. This was Naaman, or this was uh, Gehazi acting on his own. You know. You know what we would do with that? We'd say. Oh, well, look, I only asked for a talent. He gave me two. That had to be the Lord. That'd be like you going out, men, uh, and uh, wanting to buy a 26 foot vessel. And, you know, you're looking at eighty dollars to $100,000, whatever it is. And then somebody has one that's only a year old, the spouse died, and the wife wants to get rid of it. She'll sell it to you for $50,000. It has to be the Lord at that price. Same stuff, okay? And it didn't get Gehazi very far. In fact, it ended pretty poorly for him. Verse 25, he went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said to him, Oh my goodness, boy, you don't want to mess with a man of God. Where have you been, Gehazi? Sound like God in the garden talking to Adam. Where have you been? And he said, your servant went nowhere. Lie. Lie. But he said to him, Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Ooh, he has specific details of what happened. Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants? In other words, evidently there were times where God allowed Elisha to take those things and he would take them and either use them for the school of prophets, or he would distribute it to the people. But this was not one of those times. He would not take anything. And so Gehazi is being called out. I mean, can you imagine standing there hearing this from Elisha? He knows in detail what you did, and now he's correcting you. This was not one of those times. Now... Um uh, let's just move on here. Get to the end here. Verse 27. Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper like snow. Wow. Wow. This story reveals a pagan who is cured of leprosy by faith. And it also shows an Israelite who by a dishonorable act gets that leprosy. The Syrian, the Gentile, is healed and comes to know God. The Israelite, who has known God his whole life, who's walking closest to the man of God, his servant, and he ends up with leprosy. Just because you have history with God, your parents knew the Lord, you were raised in the church, you've always served the Lord in the church, blah, 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 does not guarantee that there will not be trial and suffering for you if you are disobedient. And that there will not be trial and suffering for you if you are obedient. In this case, Elisha could have been a very wealthy man, and God said, "Don't touch it, don't." So you know, the more we study the Scripture, the more we realize there's no pat answers. There's no not everything is just black and white answer. And but one thing's for sure, we need to line up with Scripture. That's what this story tells us. All The whole story is hinged upon obeying the man of God. Because by obeying the man of God, you're obeying God. And when you don't obey God, you get no healing. You get no help. You get, you're on your own. When you obey God, God is able to use that and work through you and work with you and able to help others. Right, just a beautiful story. Any questions about the story at all? Anybody have any questions? Story of Naaman. Yes. Uh huh. And yeah, that's possible. Very good. Okay, let me let me repeat it, Ron, because people can't hear you on the live stream unless I do. Uh, so, one one thought there is that um, the reason he didn't take it... First point he again. Yeah. So, by accepting those gifts, it would have been Elisha possibly taking the glory that belonged only to God. And, secondly, it might have given Naaman the false impression that... He would focus on the man of God instead of on God himself. So maybe that's true. We don't know for sure. There are times where the man or woman of God does take the gift. God's in it, right? That's why I say there's no black and white answer here on these on, uh, in this story. But it's it makes each of us think a little bit more about pride, haughtiness, obedience, doing exactly what God says, even when we don't think it's going to work or we don't like the person who told us to do it. But if it lines up with the Word of God, why wouldn't you obey the Word? Amen. Anybody else have a a question or a comment? How many of you learned this story when you were a child? Raise a hand. Okay. And uh, how many times have you heard it, (laughs) the story of Naaman? Probably many times. I know I have in my life. But uh, it's all. every time I go back to it, there's always something new that God wants to teach. And that's what I love about the Holy Spirit and the work of God. Amen. All right. Well, friends, we're done. We're going to close in prayer. Uh, feel free to grab some more food. Sorry, live stream, you can't have any food. You're not here. So if you're able to come out, please come out next Wednesday night. And if not, we are thankful and happy to provide the live stream for you. Father, thank you for your love and thank you for this time together. May we all take to heart what the Word of God is teaching us. In Jesus' name, amen.